Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. What happens when a stranger's desire for parenthood is so great that they're willing to do anything to achieve it, even steal the unbreakable bond between mother and child through murder, this time on Invisible Choir. Today is the first day I learned of how my daughter was murdered and how my granddaughter was taken from her. He put the rope around her neck and he, um, he pulled it tight. I started cutting the baby out. Every day I'm reminded of her more and more because every day she grows, she looks starting to look more like her mother. August 19th, 2017, a balmy 83-degree Saturday afternoon in Fargo, North Dakota. The city of approximately 120,000 is alive and bustling with activity. The local Red River Market draws hundreds to downtown Fargo for locally grown produce and live music. About eight miles north of town, the North American Fast Pitch Association World Series is in full swing, bringing together elite teams from across the U.S. and Canada at the city's brand new Northside Complex. Life is good in this bustling Midwestern town. At our North Fargo apartment, 22-year-old Savannah LaFontaine Graywin settles in to enjoy the warm weekend weather. She's glowing. An eight months pregnant Spirit Lake tribal member, originally born in Belcourt, North Dakota, living on the reservation until just a month before when she moved into the ground level apartment in Fargo with her parents. Her warm smile is welcoming and radiates a confident, bright, youthful beauty. Having recently earned a certified nursing assistant license a few years before, she transferred to the Eventide Nursing Home in Fargo in January of 2016 to continue a promising career in the service and care of others. She and boyfriend Ashton Matheny began dating their freshman year of high school, and both were excited and preparing to bring a new life into the world with the expected forthcoming birth of their unborn daughter, Hazley Joe. As she had done on prior occasions, Savannah agreed to help a neighbor in need and texted her mother Norberta at 1.24 in the afternoon to alert her that she was, quote, going upstairs to model a dress. The events over the next hour would tear apart a family and a community forever. After realizing Savannah had not returned from the upstairs neighbor's apartment after about an hour, mother Norberta LaFontaine Graywin sent her 16-year-old son upstairs to check on his sister. She was supposed to give him a ride to work that afternoon, and the time of his shift approached. At 2.30 p.m., he knocked at the door to no avail, but later recalled that he heard the sound of what he believed was a sewing machine running inside the apartment. Confused, he alerted Savannah's father, Joe, who also approached the upstairs neighbor's apartment to inquire as to Savannah's whereabouts. This time, a short woman pulls the door open only enough to lean through telling Savannah's father that she would be just a little while longer. Figuring Savannah's kindness had been overextended, her mother drives her younger brother to work and returns to the apartment at approximately 3.15 that afternoon. Assuming Savannah has returned home and is already in her bedroom, Norberta goes on with the household chores for about the next hour. After realizing that Savannah had not returned home, her mother again approaches the upstairs neighbor, inquiring as to her daughter's whereabouts. The same short woman answers the door as before and explains that Savannah had already left. With no sign of Savannah in the house and a conflicting message from the upstairs neighbor, Norberta LaFontaine Graywin phones the Fargo police and reports Savannah missing. 
Her extended family and friends spend the rest of that evening searching for the mother-to-be. With Sunday come and gone and still no word from Savannah, friends and family grow increasingly more concerned and begin posting homemade signs around town, asking for the public's help in locating her. They spend much of the next three days rallying for public support and calling for increased resources from local, state, and federal police. With every hour and every day that passes, family and friends remain hopeful for Savannah and unborn child Hazley Joe's safe return. This past Saturday afternoon, Savannah Lafontaine Graywin, who's eight months pregnant, has gone missing. And now her loved ones are saying, hey, we don't know for sure. She may be in danger. We need your help. So her mom, Savannah, and her sister, Kayla, join us tonight in studio to ask for your help. To both of you, uh, our thoughts and prayers go out to you. It's just heartbreaking to see and hear this story. I know you've been talking to police and authorities a lot over the past couple days. What's the latest you can share with us? Um, they haven't found anything. Um, I talked to them a few hours ago and they're working on things, but investigating stuff at night, they have nothing as of right now. And the last, I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, but her boyfriend and her were texting on Saturday afternoon. Yes. Around 1.30, all of a sudden the text just stopped and there's been no communication with you, you, him, Nobody since then. None. I got a text from her at 1.24, and that was the last. What was your last communication with her, and what was it like? Um, she took me to work that morning around 10, probably, and that's the last I seen her. So I guess the most important thing is, does she have any markings, anything that people can be looking for? If we can bring her picture up, please, and Mom, if you want to walk us through about uh, did she have any regular hangouts? Did she, anything we can be looking for that can help you out? No, the thing is, she was a homebody. She was eight months pregnant. You know, she was uncomfortable at that. She, her feet were swollen. That's... She wouldn't leave anywhere alone. She wouldn't alone. leave. She always got mad at me for leaving by myself. She would never go anywhere alone. So was she at your house at 1.30 on Saturday and she just left to run an errand or? Yeah, she lives with me. Um, she went to help a neighbor and. Right upstairs. That's the last we've heard from her. Nobody's, assuming, nobody's seen from her, seen her or heard from her since. And I'm assuming you and or authorities have spoken to this neighbor and what's the yes, neighbor say? That she left. So she was obviously, I'm assuming, going back down to your place and. Yes. She, she ordered a pizza. She ordered a pizza. She should have came home and ate. We're trying to get some guidance of where to go, where to start searching. Um, I don't know, any any information would help. I, we have nothing. With no further developments from police through Wednesday, August 23rd, family and friends gather in downtown Fargo at the Sanford Medical Center to pray for Savannah's safe return. Standing in a large prayer circle, dozens of indigenous family and community members gather around a drum and song, smudging in sacred medicine and calling for additional investigative assistance on the search from the FBI. They cry out for more police resources and demand that a greater sense of urgency be assigned to the search for Savannah and unborn child, Hazley Joe, rallying together in passionate cries and a call for the public to join in on the expanding search for their missing loved one, their stolen sister. But fears are rapidly growing that Savannah Greywind is but another missing or murdered indigenous woman, or MMIW as the movement has been referred. It's a national crisis throughout the US and Canada with indigenous women facing murder rates over 10 times the national average, where violence against indigenous American women is a legacy deeply rooted in colonialism, and efforts to combat the violence are routinely stalled through complex jurisdictional overlap between federal, state, county, and tribal law enforcement agencies. Amidst the outcries, Fargo Chief of Police David Todd responds. This is Chief David Todd with the Fargo Police Department making a statement regarding 
the Savannah Gray Wind missing persons case. The Fargo Police Department has uh, put all of its resources towards solving this case from the beginning. We've had 35 detectives, four sergeants, two lieutenants, and a deputy chief overseeing this investigation. We've also asked for assistance from outside agencies and used three aircraft, watercraft, and canines in trying to find Savannah Graywind. Savannah's boyfriend, Ashton Matheny, was quickly ruled out as a suspect. He explained that he had been staying with his dad on the Spirit Lake Indian Reservation, nearly 160 miles away, near Devil's Lake, until Savannah's disappearance the week before. He had been assisting in the construction of his father's new home, explaining that he had sought out the work to, quote, get money for the baby. He had been applying for jobs in Fargo ahead of his anticipated move to rejoin Savannah in the coming weeks. Matheny was house-sitting for his mother in Grand Forks when he initially learned of her disappearance. He had last connected with Savannah approximately one hour prior to her agreeing to help the upstairs neighbors with the sewing project. Matheny indicated having heard from Graywind's mother Norberta during the early stages of her disappearance the Saturday before at around 4.30. Norberta explained to Matheny that Savannah was gone, that she simply vanished without a trace, but that something seemed terribly wrong. Matheny indicated he was confused and wrought with agony ever since her disappearance was revealed to him over the phone. There was nothing he could do from so far away. The early focus of the investigation started and remained with the upstairs neighbors. And on Thursday, August 24, 2017, Fargo Police Chief David Todd revealed to the public what many were fearing, only the implications were far worse as any hope for Savannah's safe return home quickly deteriorated. Yesterday, we were able to develop some information that led to a search warrant, which was conducted today. When we conducted the search warrant uh, at the suspect residence, we discovered an infant that appears to be a newborn infant. At this point in time, we're not able to confirm if that newborn infant is Savannah Graywind's child or not. And at this time, we do not have information that tells us where Savannah Graywind is. We have two people detained right now for questioning, and the investigation is proceeding. We ask people to be patient with us because this is at a critical juncture of the investigation, and we want to make sure we're as thorough as possible so that we can get the correct answers to all the questions that people have. Thank you for your patience, and stay tuned to our Facebook page as we put out further information. Thank you. Fargo police post to their social media a lengthy press release explaining the known circumstances surrounding Savannah's disappearance to that point, with special emphasis on the upstairs neighbors, 38-year-old Brooklyn Cruz and 32-year-old William Henry Hain, who both reside at 2825 9th Street North, apartment number 5. The post goes on to reveal that the police conducted an initial missing persons investigation and that both Hain and Cruz were interviewed by police, but that no leads were developed. Cruz again indicated at the time that Savannah had left the apartment after helping her with a sewing project. The initial investigating officer received permission to search the upstairs apartment and did so without finding anything suspicious that would have indicated foul play. That officer returned again later with a supervisor and conducted another search of the apartment. Again, nothing indicating foul play was found on the premise. As suspicions grew, a detective conducting a follow-up investigation returned for a third consensual search. And again, nothing. After further developments ensued, the police revealed that at approximately 2 p.m. on Thursday, they executed the search warrant at the upstairs apartment making it the fourth search conducted by police on Cruz and Haynes' residence. During this fourth and final search, Brooke Cruz was present, along with a newborn infant that had not been present during the previous three searches. The newborn child was immediately taken to a local hospital, police explaining via Facebook that, quote, our investigation thus far indicates the probability that this is Savannah Graywin's child. As I said yesterday in my release, our entry and search found a newborn baby girl in apartment number five at 2825 9th Street North with Brooke Lynn Cruz. The baby girl was transported by ambulance to a medical facility 
where she is currently being cared for. Detective interviews with Holmes and Cruz indicate the baby girl is Savannah's baby. We are doing DNA testing to confirm the identity of the baby. However, testing and results can take several days. In the interviews, when it comes to the topic of what happened to Savannah, neither Home nor Cruz will cooperate with our investigation. Both Home and Cruz invoked their right to counsel and refused to answer any more questions. At that point, we arrested both of them and charged them with Class A felony, conspiracy to commit kidnapping. A specially trained search team has combed the area between Broadway and North University Drive and 25th Avenue North and Riviera Heights. However, there may have been areas such as garages, locked-in, fenced-in areas, or outbuildings that they could not check. We would like to ask for the public's help throughout the city on several different fronts. Please check your property, buildings, garages, outbuildings for any sign of entry or any sign of have someone having been there. Landlords, please check your vacant apartments that you may have for any sign of entry or evidence that anybody has been there. If you are willing to check dumpsters, we'd ask for the public's help in doing that. However, just make sure you put the garbage back in the dumpster after you're done. We ask in doing all of this that you please respect other people's private property while you're assisting us. Also, if you have seen this Jeep belonging to the people we've arrested on either Saturday or Sunday, please call us and give us the location where you saw that Jeep. I am your host, JD Horror. And this is True Crime Horror Story, a true crime podcast designed like an anthology horror movie. It is definitely not for the faint of heart and won't be played for laughs. Join us on July 11th, 2019 for the debut episode. In season one, we will highlight both notorious and obscure incidents of real-life murder. From world-famous psychopaths like the Night Stalker Richard Ramirez, to lesser-known evils that you may not have heard of, but have effects just as catastrophic for the victims and their families. Subscribe now wherever podcasts can be consumed, and check out our website at www.truecrimehorrorstory.com and Instagram at truecrimehorrorstory. True Crime Horror Story. Sometimes truth is more brutal than fiction. Fargo Chief of Police David Todd also revealed that during the initial stages of the investigation into Savannah's disappearance, that the primary suspects, Brooke Cruz and William Hain, had been under near constant surveillance, and that they were investigating various theories, including that Savannah was being held somewhere against her will, or that unborn child Hazley Joe had been forcefully induced or somehow removed from her mother, alive and well somewhere in a separate location. Chief Todd indicated that they had finally developed a criminal connection on Wednesday that generated the search warrants that finally led to the discovery of the newborn child laying on the couple's bed upstairs in apartment 5, a child who, at the time of her discovery, appeared to have already been approximately one week old. But where was Savannah? And how could police possibly have missed the vital clues early on if the couple had actually been under near-constant surveillance, as Chief Todd claimed? These were questions the Greywind family was demanding answers to. In retrospect, however, police did appear to have taken Norberta's first report of her missing daughter seriously, arriving on scene just 30 minutes after she filed the missing persons report that Saturday afternoon. 
They conducted the first consensual search in the upstairs apartment just 30 minutes later at around 5 p.m., the very day Savannah went missing. In between canvassing the area searching for clues, police conducted two additional cursory walkthroughs of Cruz and Haynes' apartment. One additional time that same evening, Savannah vanished, and again the following day. But these walkthroughs weren't invasive or exhaustive searches. They were surface level at best, where officers were casually invited inside to have a look around. But during the third search the day following Savannah's disappearance, police wanted to further investigate a tip from the Grey Ones themselves about a possible hiding spot located in the bathroom closet. The family was previously aware of the layout of the upstairs apartment and knew about the well-hidden plumbing access compartment in the back of the bathroom closet. They suggested police search there for, at best, a hidden clue, or at worst, a body. Few other details of the warrant were revealed early on, as the investigation was active and ongoing, and the police weren't releasing all of the details to the public. But the family continued coordinating organized searches throughout Fargo, with efforts concentrated that weekend at nearby Trollwood Park immediately following the discovery of Hazley Joe. The park expands across a 28-acre swath of land directly adjacent to the Red River on the North Dakota-Minnesota border. Search coordinator Christina Becker arranged organized searches of the area throughout the weekend and described the ongoing efforts on behalf of the Greywind and LaFontaine families, while Fargo police provided two liaisons to be present to assist with search efforts. What's happening today? Is this the police organizing the search or you guys are kind of doing We're, um, it's the family and friends of, of the Gravens and LaFontaines. Okay. Um, it's a continuation of the search that was started Friday and Saturday. Okay. How do you know where to go or where will you go? Um, we have a map that we've been using, a very large city map. Um, I'm unsure of where it mm. came from. Um, I was kind of jumped mm. into uh, yeah. this yesterday. Um, but on the map, we highlight areas that we want people to search, that we send people out to search, and when they come back with the reports, we put a black X through it if there's nothing found or nothing okay. remotely okay. disturbing. Was this map kind of established with the, some tips that came in or just trying to logically... It's literally just a city map, a okay. city of Fargo map um, that um, okay. doesn't include anything else, and we're just going section by section by section. What's going on on the law enforcement side is uh, I'm here as a liaison to the search group, uh, just offering assistance where needed for, from the Fargo Police Department. Yeah, the Fargo Police Department still have an ongoing investigation into this case, and they're still uh, working diligently trying to figure out uh, what happened to uh, Ms. Graywin. Uh, but for this morning, there's a large uh, search group of, of uh, private citizens that are going out, and we're here to offer assistance, uh, give them some knowledge on what they can and can't do, and, and they're actually very organized and, and doing a good job here. Hopelessness begins to set in as a community comes to grip with the fact that a potentially horrendous crime has been committed. But what? Without a body, it's impossible to say precisely what happened, but investigators would find out soon enough. One full week after her initial disappearance, on Saturday, August 26th, Fargo police post to Facebook that they have brought in special placenta-sniffing dogs from Minneapolis, Minnesota to aid in the search for missing 22-year-old Savannah LaFontaine Greywind. Police indicate that they have focused in on 35 specific locations in the search, but that efforts have not yet yielded conclusive results. Police also reveal that the search has expanded to Riverside communities in Minnesota, but when asked if the investigation had expanded to include federal jurisdiction, Chief Todd explained that both agencies continue to work together, but that at the moment, the investigation remains a Fargo police matter. Meanwhile, hundreds of community members participate in a prayer walk beginning in Oak Grove Park, leading all the way to the Veterans Memorial Bridge in solidarity with the LaFontaine Greywin family. Savannah's boyfriend and father of Hazley Joe, Ashton Matheny, is not yet allowed to see the newborn baby girl identified as their daughter, as there are additional investigative hurdles that need to be cleared before they can connect him with the child. But on this day, Exactly one week after Savannah went missing and two days after Hazley Joe was discovered alive, Matheny has yet to even see a photo of the newborn infant. 
Authorities restricting access to him until they can confirm via DNA that the child is naturally born of LaFontaine Greywind. Baby Jane Doe, aka Hazley Joe, remains in the custody of Cass County Social Services. Matheny, frustrated with procedural delays preventing him from seeing his daughter, admits confusion while police are, quote, admitting it's our baby. I guarantee if I saw it, I could tell whose child it is. It doesn't matter what I think. They have guidelines and procedures. It's frustrating. Matheny indicated that police took samples of Savannah's clothing, along with her toothbrush, in hopes of establishing a DNA-certified connection to the child. Police declined collecting DNA from Matheny himself initially. With the addition of the placenta-sniffing dogs to the search, all of the signs are there that police are most likely searching for Savannah's lifeless body near the Red River. And the very next day, the family's worst fears are confirmed by police. Recreational kayakers on the Red River found what appeared to be a body-sized object, heavily wrapped in plastic and duct tape, stuck against a tree sticking out in the middle of the river. The kayakers immediately notified law enforcement who responded to the scene. At the same time, searchers checking on an abandoned farmstead just south of where the body was found on 90th Avenue in Clay County found suspicious items indicating what may be a crime scene. The Clay County Sheriff's Department, along with the Fargo Police Department, responded to the scene. The Clay County Sheriff's Department is the department of jurisdiction for this possible crime scene. They have secured this scene and are currently working with the BCA to thoroughly process that area to determine if indeed it is a crime scene. The body-sized object wrapped in plastic and duct tape was retrieved from the river at approximately 8.20 p.m. and a very preliminary examination at 9.30 p.m. by Fargo detectives confirmed it was the body of Savannah Marie Graywin. Savannah Marie Graywin's body has been sent to the medical examiner in Ramsey County by the Clay County Sheriff's Department for an autopsy and forensic examination. As more details emerge, authorities revealed Monday that evidence suggested Savannah LaFontaine Graywin was the victim of a quote, cruel and vicious act of depravity. Suspects Cruz and Haynes' stories were not aligning, and both were also eventually charged with conspiracy to commit murder and providing false information to police, in addition to the existing conspiracy to commit kidnapping charges. Both made their initial court appearance that Monday, while family, friends, and community members gathered that evening to honor Savannah's life, with some 500 people in attendance. first grim details of Savannah's vicious murder are made available with the release of the preliminary autopsy results, which showed Graywin's death occurring as the result of homicidal violence. Police declined to offer additional details as the investigation was still underway, but all signs hinted that Savannah's final moments alive were fraught with homicidal rage and aggression. Reports also indicate that Savannah's boyfriend, Ashton Matheny, was finally permitted to visit with newborn Hazley Joe on this day for the very first time. But for a day that should have finally brought the family some level of closure, it left most with many desperate unanswered questions and requires us to take a look back at all of the missed opportunities and how two people living within such a close proximity to the family whose daughter they so cruelly took from this world seemingly got away with it for nearly five days while the police were eyeing their every move. In order to gain a better understanding of the information police obtained throughout their early investigation, information the public was not yet aware of, we need to go back to the original search warrant, the execution of which finally led to the discovery of Hazley Joe.
At each of their eventual trials, crucial information eventually came to light, including details of the very first police interviews with Brooke Cruz and William Hain. In an interview the day before the two were served with the search warrant that broke the case wide open, William Hain told police that he arrived home at around 2.30 in the afternoon the previous Saturday, and that Cruz was in their apartment with their obviously pregnant neighbor, a woman he claims he never formally met until that day. He described to police how Brooke introduced him to Savannah, implying that she was helping her out with a sewing project, only after gazing around their apartment, he didn't see any type of sewing supplies out. Hain also reveals to police that he has four children himself from previous relationships, and that Cruz has seven. He makes no mention at all of the newborn child he and Cruz have been secretly harboring in the apartment for the past five days. A child who, during the previous three police walkthroughs, had been lying quietly asleep under a blanket on the couple's bed. Were it not for a flu kit and run implicating Haynes' red pickup truck later that very afternoon at the local Walmart, police might never have secured the evidence needed to conduct an exhaustive forensic search inside their upstairs apartment. While investigating the hit and run, Fargo police checked the Walmart security cameras, noting that Hain had actually entered the store and purchased various items. When they checked his receipts and footage of him exiting the store, he had with him in his bags, diapers. And because he had not mentioned anything about younger children during his previous police interview that day, police were able to obtain the search warrant, which they executed the following day. And upon discovering the baby immediately after entering, they took Brooke Cruz into custody and detained Hain at his workplace. But even after the miraculous discovery of the newborn baby, neither one was ready to talk, let alone tell the truth about what actually happened. Like Hain, Brooke Cruz presented police with a similar series of confusing and very unlikely lies. She initially claimed that she taught Savannah how to induce labor by breaking her own water during her initial visit, after which she claims Savannah safely left and then quietly returned two days later in the dark of the night to present her with the newborn child, and that the subsequent discovery of Savannah's body just a few miles down the road, wrapped in plastic and duct tape stuck on a log in the side of the Red River, was simply a tragic coincidence. Cruz would go on to describe in lucid detail how Savannah allegedly confided in her that she wanted to learn how to safely induce her own labor so that she could get rid of the baby and, quote, take off on life and on her responsibilities, while Hain eventually admitted to a much cleaner version of events after kayakers discovered Savannah's body. Hain's second version of events changed, and he revealed to police how when he returned home to their apartment on August 19th after work, he found Cruz cleaning up a bloody mess in their bathroom, literally mopping up the remnants of what would eventually become one of Fargo's most notorious crimes. Moments later, presenting him with the newborn infant wrapped in a towel, proclaiming, This is our baby. This is our family. Hain would later admit to police that he then helped Brooke clean up the apartment out of love and helped her dispose of multiple trash bags full of bloody evidence, including towels and a pair of his own shoes, discarding the collection in the dumpster of a nearby apartment building. After the arrests and additional charges for conspiracy to commit murder and providing police with false information, a judge set bond for the pair during their initial court appearance at $2 million each, indicating that the forensic search of their electronic devices included online searches for travel websites, implying that both were actively seeking options to flee the area. But what were they preparing to run from? And why, just days later, was Savannah's mutilated body found dumped in the Red River, meticulously wrapped in plastic and duct tape? And how did they remove her from the apartment to begin with, under the close, watchful eye of Fargo police? As it turned out, the entire plot was part of a larger, gruesome conspiracy one that would forever traumatize the family when Brooke Cruz changed her initial not guilty plea to guilty on December 11th, 2017, taking full responsibility for killing Savannah Greywind. Just a few months later in February of 2018, she admitted to the judge the full depravity of her actions as the prosecutor read aloud a summary of her statement of confession, detailing what actually happened to Savannah during her final moments. I did cut her and then I took her baby out of her. 
She was not dead when I cut her and took her baby out of her. Prosecutor Tanya Martinez also detailed for the court how Brooke Cruz lured Savannah into her apartment with the intent to kill her and take her baby. Cruz even offered the eight months pregnant mother-to-be $20 to help model a dress for her sewing project. And after overpowering Savannah and knocking her unconscious, she performed a crude C-section on her with a carpenter's box cutter knife, cutting her hip to hip without the benefit of any type of anesthesia. The pain intermittently bringing Savannah in and out of consciousness while the new life growing inside of her was so horrendously stolen away. Martinez also revealed to the court that Cruz, in a shocking display of brazen arrogance, admitted to repeatedly taking baby Hazley Joe out into public to Walmart multiple times while community members were still desperately searching for Savannah. No idea that she had already been murdered and that her body had been carelessly dumped in the Red River. Norberta LaFontaine Graywin addressed the court as well, expressing her profound heartbreak only moments after learning of the gruesome details of her daughter's murder. I get so upset and angry and can't understand how or why these people could have taken my girl from me, from us. The pain of losing a child is like no other pain. I now know that pain. My heart is literally broken. judge granted the prosecution's request, sentencing Brooklyn Cruz to the maximum possible penalty for the charges, life in prison without the possibility of parole. The courtroom was filled with friends and family of Savannah Greywind, many of them wearing bright red, the color of the missing and murdered indigenous women's movement, a color that also has special cultural significance to various indigenous communities, many believing it is the only color that spirits can actually see so it is warned to actively draw the trapped spirits back so that they may be properly laid to rest. But on their way out of the courtroom, friends and family of Savannah made it clear that they were only just getting started and that there was more work to be done in the quest for justice for Savannah Greywind. The hardest thing I've ever done, by far. I hope no one else in this community, in the United States, in the world ever has to endure the pain that I do. That the great ones have to. Our seven year anniversary is coming up on March 20th. And every day I'm reminded of her more and more because every day she grows, she looks starting to look more like her mother. I miss Savannah so much. I've never put love into someone like I did her. Today is the first day I learned of how my daughter was murdered and how my granddaughter was taken from her. I am satisfied with this sentence. Brooke Cruz does not deserve to live. She shouldn't even been talking. She didn't have a reason to cry at all in court. Her cries mean nothing to me. Where one lie in this tragic case had been told, more were sure to follow. Most of the details surrounding Savannah LaFontaine Greywind's tragic murder were omitted due to Brooke Cruz's guilty plea and her subsequently avoiding a drawn-out trial. But there was someone else in apartment 5, someone who helped Brooke Cruz in the moments immediately following her grotesquely crude fetal abduction, and that person was William Henry Hain. Hain's trial was originally scheduled for March then was delayed until May, and then again until September of 2018. Both sides agreed that they had more information to gather and that they needed additional time to help build or defend his charge of conspiracy to commit murder. Hain was prepared to plead guilty to the kidnapping and false information charges, but he was steadfast in his denial of having anything to do with the murder of Savannah LaFontaine Greywind. After the trial began, it was clear Everyone was working for themselves, Hain to clear himself of any responsibility in the killing, and Cruz, though she had already pleaded guilty to the charge herself and admitted sole responsibility for the killing during her sentencing, 
had changed her story again, and this time she was pointing the finger squarely at Hain. With everything to lose, Hain described in detail this time what he saw when he first entered their apartment after coming home from work at 2.30 p.m. that Saturday afternoon. She opened the door and I walked into the bathroom and I saw Savannah laying on the floor there. What was your immediate reaction? What the I said, who is this? She said, this is Savannah. I said, where did she come from? She said, I went and got her. According to Haynes' defense, he'd actually believed that Cruz herself was pregnant, her alleged due date fast approaching at about the time of Savannah's murder, and that he wasn't confronted with the horrible reality that she had been faking it all along until he came home from work that very day, seeing Savannah crudely cut from hip to hip with a rope tied securely around her neck. Hain told the jury Savannah was already dead and described in detail how months before, Cruz had emailed him a photograph of a positive pregnancy test, along with an ultrasound after the two had gotten into one of their many arguments, and that they soon reconciled, happy at the prospect of raising a child together. You see, Cruz had allegedly suffered a miscarriage and subsequently had her tubes tied sometime in 2011, rendering her physically incapable of having any more children. Apparently, it was going to be their miracle baby. He'd even told co-workers how happy he was that she was expecting their first child and that he was preparing to be a new father all over again. But walking into his apartment that afternoon and seeing what she had done, he knew it was all a ruse. While Cruz sat sprawled out on the bathroom floor, cleaning up pools of blood surrounding Savannah's now lifeless body, her prematurely awakened child, now wrapped in a towel in the bathtub barely weighing over four pounds, Hain claims he asked Brooke if she was even pregnant. And she grabbed her belly saying, I think so, I don't know, and then presented him with the swaddled child proclaiming, this is our baby, this is our family. Unsure of what to do next, Hain claims he grabbed some towels and chipped in, helping to clean up the bathroom before wrapping Savannah's body in two large garbage bags, taping the ends together at her midsection with duct tape and stuffing her into the hidden compartment at the back of the bathroom closet, where she would remain during the first two consensual searches. After that first night, though, Hain then hollowed out a dresser, nailing false drawer ends on the front and removing the back where they stuffed Savannah's body. They then gave Hazley Joe a new name, Phoenix, symbolizing her new beginning, firmly cementing their plans to raise the child as their own. Had they not moved Savannah's body when they did, Police would have discovered her during the third consensual search on Sunday, the day after she went missing, but instead, they encountered a friendly, upbeat Cruz who graciously permitted them to have a look in the bathroom closet after the tip from the Greywinds. Their body cameras were rolling as they had a look in the very spot Savannah's body lay in hiding during their previous two searches. Is it possible we take a look in your bathroom? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you can look what anywhere. What we're trying to do is just kind of eliminate any arguments. Yeah, absolutely. And just since you're here, I'll go ahead and open up the whole house to you. I mean, yeah, you go right ahead. You, I can and I know this. other officers have. We just wanted to... I can move that. You can look back there. After the third search, Hain claims they began planning for how to dispose of Savannah's body without being discovered by police, who again publicly claimed four days later to have had the couple under near constant surveillance. Both getting fairly paranoid at this point. Um, and she said, we have to get her out of here. We carried the dresser down that back stairway. Um, it's a straight shot to the, the parking lot and loaded it into the Jeep. We unloaded, right at the edge of the bridge, we unloaded, took her to the side, threw the dresser over the side of the bridge. Brooke, help you lift it and throw it over? Yes, she did. According to Hain, he hadn't killed anyone. He simply walked into a nightmarish scenario on Saturday, August 19th, and decided, after seeing a twinkle in his love's eye at the sight of the new baby, to help cover up the horrendous crime. But he was no killer. Mr. Haina, that baby made you feel like a family, didn't it? No, it didn't. To see Brooke happy for five days, to see her get to be a mom for five days, and if it was just pretend, there was a certain level of happiness or like, positive feelings in that, just to get to see her dream fulfilled. 
I knew it was all coming crashing down. There was other evidence revealed during Haynes' trial that would shed more light on what police actually discovered upon executing the full search warrant that ultimately led to the discovery of Hazley Joe, including the results of the digital forensic evidence gathered from both Cruz and Haynes' electronic devices, the content of which revealed a much darker prospect that the two had actually long planned to kill Savannah, to harvest her baby, and to start new lives elsewhere, raising the baby as their own. Andrea, today jurors were shown internet history from Brooke Cruz and William Haynes' cell phones and laptops. And eerie searches were found, like how to make a noose, how long does it take to pass out from not breathing, and if a woman dies pregnant, when does the baby die? trial quickly devolved into a he-said-she-said said exchange between the defense and prosecution, where Hayne had previously claimed that Brooke had helped him dispose of Savannah's body, her and the baby joining him along in tow as they both hoisted the dresser up and over the bridge and into the Red River. The prosecution painted a much darker picture of Hayne's alleged involvement. They claimed that he was telling it all wrong, and that for nearly every step, from the initial murder all the way through the cover-up, that he was in control pulling the strings himself and guiding Brooke Cruz through every step of the gruesome crime. Cruz actually testified for the prosecution and changed her story once again, this time claiming that Savannah was alive during and after the crude C-section and that Hayne simply came along and offered to finish off the job. He put the rope around her neck and he, um, he pulled it tight. <laughs> And he said, um, if she wasn't dead before, she is now. They also brought a former offender in from the county jail who claimed that Hayne admitted to cleaning up the crime scene and disposing of Savannah's body alone without Cruz's help. Put some trash bags, put some this way, put some trash bags this way, um, very unceremoniously. Did he um, tell you what he did once he had wrapped the body up? Um, I was told that he had uh, put it in a hollowed-out dresser. Okay, and did he tell you what he did with that dresser? Um, nailed the front back, the front pieces back on, and uh, moved it down the stairs by himself. But the defense had also been contacted by a former cellmate of Brooke Cruz, who claimed that she had admitted to planning and carrying out the entire crime on the belief that he was having an affair with Savannah, and that Savannah's baby was actually his. And though her credibility came under intense scrutiny, the witness presenting a litany of false information charges herself dating back many years, she provided a distinct detail that ultimately helped convey enough reasonable doubt in the minds of the jury that Hayne might not have had anything to do at all with Savannah's murder, as he had claimed all along. She's a devil in disguise is what she is, a master manipulator and a liar. No one deserves to go down for her crime. I shivered in my skin when she told me that she wrapped a rope around a woman's neck and cut a baby from her. Disgusting. The trial also revealed the lengthy criminal histories of both Cruz and Hayne. Brooke Cruz had multiple charges for bad checks across multiple states, many probation violations, and a previous charge for allegedly assaulting her ex-husband with a knife. There was also special attention directed at her tendency to regularly skip from job to job and relationship to relationship, moving from the east coast of the U.S. into the deep south, then to Australia, and finally back to North Dakota, establishing multiple relationships, including two marriages and seven children along the way, until she settled in with Hayne in 2012. And then there were her journals. Cruz had previously studied psychology and nursing, and developed a habit of meticulously journaling everything and had amassed several stacks of spiral-bound notebooks, each detailing her very personal thoughts over the years. She journaled on everything, from her relationships with men to her near obsession with serial killers. The journals also revealed 
her fascination with home childbirth. She researched the topic at length, even compiling materials needed for a quote, childbirth kit that contained a list including items like scissors, blades, clamps, gloves, and a generic version of the hormone oxytocin, which can be used for anything from inducing labor, reducing bleeding after labor, to inducing abortion. Her list included various other items and outlined the projected time to completion for a safe in-home procedure at somewhere near 12 hours. While the evidence gathered ultimately demonstrated that Cruz had been studying to a degree of scientific accuracy how she could effectively facilitate a safe home birth, her journals could never have predicted her transition to premeditated and cold-blooded murder. Payne also possessed a criminal history, though his was more violent. In January of 2011, he brought his infant son to the emergency room after noticing swelling behind one of his ears. He claimed that the boy accidentally fell and hit his head but the severity of the injuries alerted staff that something more violent had likely occurred, causing multiple skull fractures behind the one-year-old's right ear. The charges resulted in a warrant and an eventual conviction of felony child abuse and neglect, along with 130 days in jail. In another charge, Payne allegedly assaulted Brooke Cruz, chasing her into the bathroom, violently pushing her into the tub while threatening to drown her. Incidentally, the very same bathroom that Savannah Graywin was eventually murdered in. The prosecution also claimed that Hain already knew Cruz was not actually pregnant, as he had allegedly confronted her months before that day, confused why she wasn't showing the obvious signs of someone expecting a new child. They claimed that after he discovered they were in fact not going to have a child, he intimidated Cruz into believing that she had to come up with a baby by any means necessary because so many of their family and friends had come to expect that they would soon be introducing a new child into the world. But beyond the police missing the obvious signs that something so terrible had occurred upstairs in apartment 5, there were at least two neighbors who heard the struggle as it was unfolding there in their upstairs bathroom in real time, who never reported a thing to police because they were familiar with the couple's tumultuous past and figured the two were just fighting as per usual. It sounded like somebody was struggling for their life. We could hear um, nothing audible, but it was like kicking on the floor. Testimony from Haynes' ex-fiance, Tanith McLeod, who was coincidentally a self-described cousin of Graywin's, revealed another side to his at times violent behavior. She claimed that Hain had sexual fantasies about strangling her and regularly talked about using a rope during their sex play. She also revealed that Hain, on at least a couple of occasions, expressed, quote, slightly racist views towards American Indian people. As the trial approached a conclusion, what once seemed a relatively simple and straightforward murder case quickly proved otherwise, as the truth became more deeply ingrained in the lies that both Hain and Cruz were telling, each trying to pin the blame for Savannah's murder on the other. Over the coming weeks, William Henry Hain was found not guilty in conspiring to murder Savannah LaFontaine Greywind. But on October 29th, 2018, he was convicted of conspiring to kidnap Hazley Joe and for providing false information to police. Savannah's mother, Norberta, once again shared her thoughts with the court before Haynes' sentence was handed down, reliving the heartbreak all over again, just as she had done before at Cruz's sentencing. I don't think this man should ever walk free. He betrayed our family. He looked us in the eye with a straight face as our daughter lay dead in his apartment. My life has been forever changed. As for Savannah's daughter, this man tried to take her and raise her as his own. He said the days he spent with my granddaughter were the happiest days of his life. How sick is that? William Hain was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole a sentence well above and beyond the maximum allowable for both charges, because he was considered a uniquely dangerous offender, having presented similarly violent tendencies for abusing his infant son years before. But his fate wasn't entirely sealed. The North Dakota Supreme Court would eventually reverse his life sentence on the basis that his dangerous offender categorization was unfairly assigned and that his previous felony child abuse conviction was not in the same vein of relevancy as conspiring to kidnap a newborn baby. 
A Cass County judge eventually resentenced Hain to 20 years in prison, plus an additional 320 days to be served concurrently for both charges. As a result of Savannah LaFontaine Graywin's tragic murder and the national attention her case drew to the epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women, North Dakota Senator Heidi Heitkamp introduced a bill to Congress called Savannah's Act in December of 2018. The bill would improve tribal access to federal crime information databases, create standard protocols for responding to cases of missing and murdered indigenous women, and require better access to information and data so that the violence epidemic can be appropriately measured, monitored, and strategically addressed in the coming years. The bill was ultimately held up in the House of Representatives and did not pass the session, but was reintroduced the following year in January by Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski, along with Senators Maria Cantwell from Washington and Catherine Cortez Masto from Nevada. The bill sat in a U.S. Senate Review Committee along with another entitled the Not Invisible Act, until both were approved for full consideration by the U.S. Senate on November 20, 2019. It's a fresh sign of hope that things might finally be on the way towards change. But I just think today about who might have been saved if in fact we would have moved sooner on this, and that is why it's imperative that we move now. I have strong support for Savannah's Act. All over the country, these Native women and girls are missing, murdered, and assaulted at these unbelievable rates. And a released report by the Seattle Indian Health Board found that Washington, the state of Washington, has the highest number of cases of murdered and missing and indigenous women. So I want to see this legislation passed. I want us to get it to the House of Representatives this year, and I want to see the House of Representatives take action on it this year. There's no reason that the House of Representatives didn't take action on it in the past Congress. So we know that what is missing here is the framework that Savannah's Act will give us. And while I also want to pass the Violence Against Women Act, I also don't want Savannah's Act held hostage to getting that legislation done. We need to give Indian country more specificity today in the framework with working with local law enforcement to get that done, and we will fight. But let's move Savannah's Act today. The Yakima Nation has decades-old unsolved cases of family members that have gone missing, been murdered, or had mysterious deaths that have not been solved. This, too, is unacceptable. This epidemic is unacceptable, and we can't ignore the families and friends who have been left without answers. So I am proud to have been a past supporter of this legislation. I want to make sure it gets through the hurdles of the Legislative Congress this year. Native American women, Native Alaska women, deserve to have this in law this year. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Women are the givers of life, and water, that which sustains life. Brooke Cruz and William Hain violated that which is held most sacred, the unbreakable bond between mother and child. They committed one of the most heinous and personal crimes imaginable, colonizing the very body of Savannah LaFontaine Greywind and removing from within her soft belly the little daughter that she and Ashton Matheny were so excitedly preparing to meet. They stole that moment away and violated sacred cultural traditions in the process. And then they coldly wrapped her body in plastic bags and duct tape, stuffed her into a dresser, and dumped her into the Red River under the cover of darkness, hoping everyone would one day forget what actually happened. But water is also sacred. In the first days after she went missing, Savannah's mother and father instinctively went to the Red River alone searching for their pregnant daughter. They claimed that something led them there. Perhaps it was Savannah calling out, sending a signal to be heard. And even though her captors 
so callously dumped her body into the cold water and death, they never knew that water is also life. <laughs>